0: This morning, a little bit of where we've been and uh, kind of prime the pump for where we're going. We're talking about prayer. Why pray? Becoming God's friend. And in the first message in the series, one of the things we looked at is that, first of all, God invites us to come to Him, He invites us to to pour out whatever's on our heart in his presence and he tells us and assures us I care about you I'm interested in you I will never reject you I will never turn you down. We also learn that that doesn't mean that he promises that he's going to do everything we ask him for in that kind of praying. It's it's a it's a time to come to God as a child and pour our burdens out into His presence. But we also saw that there's another kind of praying. There's a a praying that Jesus says, God will answer every time in the affirmative. Seven times, between John chapter 12 and John chapter 16, seven times Jesus says, in one way or another, with other things around it, He makes the statement, Whatever you ask in my name, I will do. Now, we haven't gotten into a lot of depth of how to do that kind of praying, but I want to keep holding it up there for us as, as a realistic goal that has been promised by God that there is a way to pray that guarantees an affirmative answer. Then last week, we talked about becoming the friend of God. For some people, that's a, that's a very scary concept. Not only uh, did the Jews find that offensive, but many uh, of the formal uh, Christian expressions of Christian faith today find that very offensive. The idea is that God is so holy, He is so removed, He is so distant, that mere mortals can never really come to familial or familiar terms with him. The Jews had such reverence for the name of God that was revealed to Moses at the burning bush. We attempt to pronounce it Yahweh, or in English it's often written Jehovah. But the Jews were so respective even of his name that whenever they would come to the word Yahweh in Scripture instead of saying his name, they would say, the name. What I mean by that is, instead of reading, blessed is Jehovah, or blessed is Yahweh, they would say, blessed is the name. And they wouldn't even pronounce his name, because he was so, so removed from their uh, close proximity. Many, uh, uh, the Catholic religion, for example, the Catholic faith teaches You need intermediaries to get to God. You need to go through somebody else. You need some help, because God is way out there. But Jesus is the one who said, when the disciples said, teach us how to pray, Jesus is the one that said, start like this, Daddy. It horrified the Jews. Now, our our versions say, our Father, but... um, Romans chapter 8 tells us that we have received a spirit of adoption, whereby we cry out from our hearts, by the Holy Spirit, Daddy. And and, and the Jews were just astounded by that. How could you possibly be that familiar with God? That was one of the things that made them want to stone Him. But it is also Jesus who said in John chapter 16, You are my friends. I'm not calling you slaves or servants anymore because the servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I've taken you into my confidence. I've brought you near to me. I've told you everything that the Father has given to me. You are my friends. So from the lips of the Son of God Himself, two things have come out that we can go to the Almighty God of the universe on a familiar basis as his children, and call him Father. And that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, invites us into a relationship that he himself describes as friendship. You can be a friend of God. But in looking at these things thus far, we have still not really answered the question, but why do we pray in the first place? Why pray? And I don't know about you, but for me, um, at various times in my life, prayer has been a bit of a conundrum. It's been a challenge. Uh, There was a particular time in my life when I had some major setbacks. Some of you know my story, and I won't bore you with all the details, but I had I had started a church in another state, another town. I had helped get this church off the ground from scratch. Two families and my wife and me, we started the church. And it had grown and developed and it was growing well and uh, we were up to a couple hundred people and everything was going well and then all of a sudden there began to be some leadership issues to make a long story short. Uh, A couple of the fellows that helped us to establish the church um, rebelled in the process, ended up splitting the church. The church kind of fell apart. Um, We were in the middle of a building program, and and I kind of felt like we ought to be paying the bills for the church, so I volunteered to give up my salary, and I I went back into the construction field as a carpenter, worked nights sometimes as a police officer trying to make ends meet, and all these things were going on. And and I'm praying and I'm not getting answers. And all these things are coming down the pike at me. They're coming down like there's nothing I can do to stop it. And I began to get the message from people that, well, what is to be will be. God's going to only do what He wants to do. And so you, you need to pray, but you need to understand God's only going to do what He wants to do. And so when you pray, you've got to bring your will in alignment with Him. In other words, prayer was was the exercise of, of finding out what God was going to do to me anyway. And i got to tell you, in that period of time, I got pretty discouraged about prayer. I became very fatalistic in my thinking. I, I, I still wanted to serve God. I still love God. But it was kind of like, well, okay, I can't do anything about stuff. No matter what I pray, things are just going to happen to me. And so best I can do is uh, put on a bulletproof vest and a helmet and kind of hunker down when the mortars are raining and hope that I survive. And I guess if it's God's will that I don't, I'll just die. You know, that was the kind of feeling I had. And I don't know if you can identify with that, but I rather suspect that some of you can. And in those periods of time, you began to wonder, so what's the point of prayer? I mean, I, I kind of thought prayer was to make things happen. <laughs> and it wasn't working that way. And so I began to ask, why pray? Why pray? Well, in preparation for bringing this teaching this morning. I've, I've been surveying people. I've asked pastor friends. I've asked... Uh, I was in the district office on a Thursday uh, doing some interviews. I asked people there. I've asked people... I, I asked Craig Smith when, when he was here this past week. I've asked people, why pray? What's the point of praying? Why should you pray? And I've read books on why pray to see what they had to say. And... I've put down about almost half a dozen reasons that frequently crop up when the questions are asked. And I'm going to tell you right at the outset, all of them leave me a little bit hollow. They don't quite satisfy my question. Some people say you need to pray because it recognizes your dependency on God. Well, why can't I just go and say, God, I recognize I'm dependent on you. Why, why do I have to go through the motions of asking for stuff if I know to begin with? You know, why don't I just go say, Father, everything I have comes from you and I recognize that. So as I sit down to this meal, I know it came from you. I'm glad it's here. I recognize that. Amen. Jesus said, when you pray, pray this way, our Father, in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth the way it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Give us today our daily bread. It sounds to me like Jesus is saying there, we, it's appropriate to go to the Father and ask Him for the provision of daily bread. And you know what? That may not have as much meaning to us as it did to them Because you probably only do grocery shopping once a week or uh, maybe even less. Some of you may go every day, I don't know. But in those days, if you wanted groceries, you went every day to the market. You had to buy bread, you had to buy vegetables, you had to buy meat. Every single day you had to go get it. And oftentimes your ability to get it tomorrow depended on what you earned this day so that by the end of the day you had enough coins to go to the market in the morning and buy your bread. And so Jesus was connecting with them on a very basic need that was every single day in their lives. I need daily bread today. Father, I'm looking to you to give that to me. So it's not that dependency on God is not a good reason to pray, to be reminded of that. But to me, it leaves me still a little bit short that the only reason I should pray is to be reminded of my dependency. I am dependent on God, and so are you. And if you if you take another breath in, in just a few seconds here, it's because God is allowing that to happen in your life. He is providing that for you. The scripture says in him we live and move and have our being. We are dependent on God, but that alone to me doesn't answer the question as to why I should go to God and be asking Him for things. If, if the only point is just to recognize my dependency, will He give it to me anyway? Doesn't He make His sun to shine on the just as well as the unjust and give rain to the just as well as the unjust? Well, some people say prayer calms our spirit and it helps to focus our minds. You ought to pray when you're worried because prayer will settle you down. You ought to to pray when you're anxious about something because that will help calm your nerves. When you're in a crisis, you ought to pray because that will give you peace. Well, Eastern religions say you ought to meditate. Andrew Weil, the holistic physician out in Arizona, says you ought to take 12 deep cleansing breaths, do that 12 times, and you'll calm down, okay? There's a lot of things that will quiet you for a moment. but to tell me that the reason I'm supposed to pray is because it will calm my spirit. I want to pray because I need God to do something. I don't just want to feel good about the disaster. I want answers in the disaster. I want intervention. I want something to happen. So it leaves me a little vacant just to say the reason to pray is because it'll calm your spirit, help focus your mind. You can think better. I'm in trouble because I wasn't thinking very well to begin with. Or I'm in trouble because something happened that I had no control over. And I'm not going to think my way out of it. I need some divine help here. Give me some answers. One of my favorites is We ought to pray because God commands us to. Some of you are young enough that this may still be happening to you. Others of you, maybe you can remember. But when I was a kid, growing up, my mom or my dad would tell me to do something. And I had a bad habit. Sometimes I would say, why? And... um, My parents were of the school that kids should be seen and not heard. (laughs) And if they're told to do something, they ought to just do it. And so frequently that was the answer I would get. Don't ask me why, young man. I'm your mother. Just do it. But why? Don't you sass me. Okay, but is there a reason? I don't need a reason. I'm your mother. <laughs> well, I need a reason. God does command us to pray. Jesus says in Luke 18:1, you ought always to pray and not to lose heart. Paul says pray without ceasing. Paul says, every time you're anxious, don't be anxious. Pray and ask God and talk to Him. There's all kinds of Scripture that command us to pray. But what I really want to know is, why? Is it going to make a difference? Is something going to happen because I pray that would not happen if I didn't pray? Don't just tell me to pray. When God says do something... I'm the first to admit it's a very smart thing if you do it. But I I don't want to leave you empty there. I want you to know God never tells us to do something that he doesn't have a reason for. He's not in the business of just trying to make our lives miserable with a bunch of rules. In fact, I will go so far as to tell you there's not a single rule god has ever given us that does not have a reason behind it that has our best interest at heart god always has a reason and what i really want to get at as we study this together is okay god tells me to pray i agree with that but why why does he tell me to pray What am I supposed to pray for? How am I supposed to pray? And what difference will it make? Don't just tell me to pray. Explain it to me. Some people say you ought to pray because prayer is a spiritual discipline. It'll help you grow. Reading your Bible is a spiritual discipline. Coming to church is a spiritual discipline. Coming into the assembly, corporate worship, that's a spiritual discipline. All of these things do indeed help you grow in Christ. But is it just because I spend ten minutes talking to God that I'm going to grow? Or is something going on there as I'm praying? Prayer is a spiritual discipline, but when I say that, I don't know about you, but, but what comes to my mind automatically is, okay, there's a set time of day, there's a place, there's the quiet time. I ought to be spending quiet time with God 15 minutes in the morning, 30 minutes, an hour, to pick the time, doesn't matter. And, and this will help me grow. I have a feeling that when Paul said, pray without ceasing, he had something more in mind than a quiet time. And when Jesus said, you ought always to pray and not to lose heart, I have a feeling that he had more in mind than a 15-minute segment of your day. It sounds to me like an ongoing relationship that is characterized by communication with God. That is not just a block of time, but it is a conversation that goes on rather continuously. So while prayer is a spiritual discipline, it's not an adequate answer, ultimately, for why to pray. Some people say prayer is a means of grace. You know what a means of grace is? Church people talk about means of grace as those things that you do that bring you into a place where you can receive from God some blessing, some spiritual renewal, some some growth, some connection with Him. Grace, when God gives grace, He He brings Himself into your life. He he gives the capacity to, to uh, be More like him. He gives the capacity to become stronger in spirit. And so the theory is there are things I can do that are means of grace. They they bring things into my life from God. So if I read my Bible, I'm going to get grace. If I pray, I'm going to get grace. If I celebrate the communion and take the bread and the cup, I'm going to get grace. There's a little bit of flawed theology in that thinking, by the way, but it is nonetheless true to an extent that when we put ourselves in the place of reading the Scripture and communing with God and, and taking communion and experiencing uh, the the Lord's Supper and those kinds of things, it does bring us into the potential for connecting more deeply with God. But the same people say, it doesn't matter whether you get answers. What matters is that you do it. And I I even asked one person who said to me, uh, you know, I said to, to, to my congregation, God always answers prayer. He says yes, no, or wait a while. How many of you have heard that? Thank you. How many of you were sleeping? Didn't know what I was saying. I've heard that all my life. Does that inspire you to pray? Be honest. Does that inspire you to pray? It doesn't inspire me to do anything. Go ahead and ask God stuff, and He will always say yes, no, or wait. Well, so why pray? Isn't it going to be yes, no, or wait anyway? And by the way, how are you going to know if it's yes, no, or wait? Well, if you don't get it, it must be no or wait. And if you asked for it 30 years ago, maybe it's no. I don't want to wait that long to find out if my prayer was yes or no. I want to know now. And so this morning, I want to raise your awareness a little bit. I want to get you on a higher plane that prayer, while it has to do with the commandments of God, it has to do with the discipline of the spiritual walk, and it has to do with with connecting with God and bringing our anxieties and all of those things, that prayer is not simply an exercise that has no definite objective in mind. Prayer is an invitation to commune with God in order to see God do something here that would not happen if I did not pray. Now, I know this is going to sound like I'm going right back where I started, but Jesus says in Luke 18, 1, You ought always to pray and not to lose heart. Now, when he says that, I think he's talking to me about a frame of mind, a kind of conversation where no matter what comes down the pike in my life, I am always in a vertical relationship with God. Because he adds the phrase, and not lose heart, it suggests to me that one of the key times to pray is when I'm facing some kind of crisis that might make me lose heart. How many of you have had this experience where you or a loved one has gone through all the medical tests, Maybe the surgery's been done. Now you're in the hospital. And the doctor comes in and says, well, we've done all we can do. And we've done all the tests and we provide all the treatment. And, you know, I I can't tell you how this is going to turn out. And what do people say at that point in time when they call their friends and family members up and say, you know, my wife, my brother, my uncle, my dad son's in the hospital and the doctors have said there's nothing more they can do. All we can do now is pray. I hope that's not the first time that they thought of that. Prayer, Jesus says, is the first place we should begin in every situation in life. Prayer is the starting place, not the last resort. We ought always to pray. Always to be in communication with the Father. Why? Because in John 16, 24, Jesus tells his disciples, Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask so you can feel better. Ask so you get calmness to your spirit ask because i said so now he doesn't say any of those things he says until now you've asked for nothing in my name ask that you may receive jesus says i want you to pray because god wants to give you something and I want you to ask him for it so that you can get it. Now, lest you think that's not strong enough, by divine inspiration, James, in his letter, chapter 4, in those first couple of verses, verse 2 I think it is, James puts it this way, you do not have because you do not ask. Now, all of a sudden, this is making a difference in my thinking. I told you there was a time in my life when I had sort of become fatalistic. I guess whatever's going to happen is going to happen. There's not anything I can do about it. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that there are things that God wants to do that he will not do. Unless I ask him. One of the illustrations that I remember from my childhood. A preacher gave this somewhere along the way. It's one one of the few things that was probably actually right. He says, imagine this. He says, and you've probably all heard this because it's been written in about 1,500 tracts or whatever. But here's the story. A guy dies, goes to heaven. He's up in heaven. And and Peter is kind of taking him. You know, it's always Peter at the pearly gates. Peter is ushering him down the street to his new mansion and he opens the front door and they go in and uh, he's going through checking out his mansion you know and he comes this room the door's closed and and the guy says what's behind that door and and peter says well you might be interested in that why don't you you open it take a look so he opens the door and here's this room stacked full of presents all these boxes wrapped up with bows on them floor to ceiling the whole room is just packed with presents and he says what's this And he says, well, those were all the packages, all the blessings God had packaged up for you that you never asked for, so they're still here. Now, that's kind of a silly story, but it actually has a lot of theological truth. God, James is telling us, God has things that he wants to do in our lives, that he wants to give us, That we do not receive because we have never bothered to ask. And so one of the reasons that I can give you this morning that we should pray is because God wants to do stuff that He will not do unless you ask Him. There is a direct relationship between asking and receiving. And the first thing that James says about the subject of prayer is, you do not have it because you do not ask for it. In other words, you don't pray. You don't pray. And so that's why you're missing stuff in your life. Now, when I say your life, expand that arena a bit. It's not just me, myself, and I. It's your family, your, your friends, your community, the world, the missionaries, whatever. You don't have this because you're not asking for it. And then somebody comes back, if you can imagine, and they say, James, that's not true. I ask all the time. And I don't get anything I ask for. And so James in verse 3 has the second answer. He says, ah, but here's the problem. You Pray and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you can consume it on your own lust. Now we tend to hear the word lust and automatically think of sexual references, but lust is anything that satisfies my body, makes me feel good. It could be it could be stuffed things, material things, it could be food food, it could be clothes, it could be anything, anything that I want, that I'm kind of panting after, and I'm asking God, oh God, please, I want, I really need a 50-inch plasma TV. God, I can watch... Christian programs and high definition. And and it'll be like I'm really there. Please give me a 50-inch TV. James says, come on. Now that's obvious, right? I mean, you all see through that, okay? Why do you want to get well? Why do you want to pay your bills? Why do you want a job? Why do you want your kids saved? Because they're driving me crazy. And if they just get saved, I'd have some sanity around here. Oh, I see. So you don't really care about your kids. You care about how they make you feel. See, we have a lot of things that when we start talking to God we have a lot of things that he would like to get in there and start kind of getting down to the bottom of what are you really after? What do you really want? And why do you really want it? So there is some perfecting in the process of praying, but Jesus says through James, it's his spirit inspiring it, When you do ask, you're not getting answers because your motivation is wrong. But the flaw is not in asking. The flaw is in motivation. You also don't have because you're not asking. So, praying must be rightly motivated in order to receive answers. Which is almost exactly what Jesus says in John 15 when he says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, then you can ask what you wish and I will do it. But the point is rather clear from James chapter 4 that we must pray in order to receive answers. And if we do not pray, we will not. Get answers. Now, I, I just want to stop here and just take a take a mental break for a second. Let me ask you. If I dropped dead of a heart attack right now and could not finish this series, and this is all you knew, is that reason enough to start praying? I, I would. I'd start right now. If, that's all, if all I knew is what you've just heard, That's reason enough for me to start praying. Because at least you got a chance of getting some answers. Don't you think? I mean, you may have a lot of prayers that still have mixed motives, bad motives, whatever. But every once in a while you might just land on one. So I would start praying just because there's a good chance that I'm going to hit it every once in a while. You don't have because you don't ask. That would make me want to start asking. Already. I don't understand the whys of it yet. I don't maybe have all the theology down. I haven't figured out John 14, 15, and 16. Every time you ask, you receive what you ask for. I may not have all of that figured out. But already I know enough Scripture... To know that Jesus has made it clear to me that the reason you should pray is because he wants to do stuff in your life, in the world, that is not going to get done if you don't ask. One of the things that... Jesus says, and I'm really getting ahead of myself because next week I'm going to go much more deeply into this area. But in Matthew 28:18, and yes, I know, for those of you running the PowerPoint, I got out of order. But I did that on purpose, even though you didn't know that. In and, and, and Matthew 28, Jesus comes to kind of his last words to his disciples, and he says this. All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth, all authority is given to me. When did he make that statement? After the crucifixion and the resurrection, when he was walking with his disciples in his resurrected life, Jesus at that point was what Paul describes as the firstborn from the dead, the second Adam, the beginning of the new creation. And one of the things that happened back in Genesis is God made a world that he gave to us, to our parents, Adam and Eve. He said, I made this for you. You have authority here. Have dominion over this world. Subdue it. Rule over it. This is your planet. And they unwittingly gave up that right when they sold out to Satan and rebelled against God. What they didn't realize, and the devil never tells you the whole truth, what they didn't realize is they had surrendered the title deed to the planet. And what Jesus was saying in that resurrection, post-resurrection appearance, as he spoke with his disciples is, I am the resurrected Christ. I am the second Adam. I am the firstborn of a new race of people that can be born again. All authority is given to me, not only in heaven, but on the earth. I have authority. And I give you the privilege of speaking in my name. I have this authority. And so as you go, you make disciples. And I will always be there. I will always be with you. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do. John chapter 15. If you look with me there. I've been all over the place, but I want to come back to John 15 as we uh, kind of wrap up this morning. John chapter 15. Beginning in verse 1 and going down through probably verse 16. If you'll turn there and I'll read and you can follow along. Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Now automatically we know that he's giving us an analogy. This is an illustration he said, here, I'm going to talk to you about my relationship with you. I'm the vine. You're the branches. My father's the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. You're already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me. And I and you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Now, this is self evident. If you take a branch and cut it off of the vine and it falls on the ground, what happens to it? It dries up and dies. And it's not good for anything. Do you expect if you cut a branch off the vine and it's down on the ground now, do you expect when the vine starts bearing fruit, do you expect to find fruit on that branch? No, because it's disconnected from the source. So Jesus is, is giving us a picture here that there's a vital relationship between him, you, and fruit. He says if you want fruit, you have to be connected to the source The vine, that's me. So what kind of fruit do you suppose a grape vine is going to produce? Are you going to find oranges on it? No, you're going to find grapes on it. Because it's a grape vine. In other words, the only kind of fruit, if you want fruit that smells like Jesus, if you want fruit that will last forever like Jesus, if you want eternal fruit, significance then you have to be plugged into a source like that jesus is the source of life eternal life permanence all that's real all that's valuable if you want your life to bear fruit that have has those kinds of qualities then you need to be plugged into jesus who is divine and then his life flows through you to produce fruit. Now, can the vine produce fruit without branches? Not too many people are willing to go there, but because it sounds like you're limiting God. But, but this is what Jesus is saying. The fruit comes from the branches. The branches are plugged into Jesus. The vine's stalk does not produce fruit. Branches produce fruit. And some people said, okay, what is this fruit that Jesus is talking about? I've heard all kinds of sermons. Some people say it's spiritual fruit. This is the fruit of the Spirit. Some people say this is souls. If you're Pentecostal, it's, it's fruit of the Spirit. If you're Baptist, it's, it's winning souls. Seriously, I mean, I, I've, I've been in all the camps, and I, that's the way it goes. I don't think it has anything to do with anything like that. It's just fruit. What kind of fruit? It's eternal fruit. It's Jesus' fruit. It's significant fruit. It's fruit that lasts. If my life is going to be productive in an eternally significant and meaningful way, I am going to be plugged into Jesus, and His life is going to be flowing through me. And in that relationship, my life will be fruitful. In an eternal way. Now then, as we go further in the story, he says, I'm the vine, verse 5, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Okay. Nothing, by the way. You might do stuff, but it will not have any lasting value. Really. On the God scale, so he says, if anyone does not abide in Me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them, cast them into the fire, and they're burned. Now, don't get all excited about eternal security here. This is this has nothing to do with eternal security. It's just pointing out the obvious in the analogy. If you lop the branch off the vine, it's going to die. It's not going to do anything. It's not good for anything. But throw in the fire. It's it's not going to produce any fruit. So it's a warning to us. He's not talking about whether or not you're going to make it to heaven. He's talking about are you going to be fruitful or not. If you're whacked off from the vine, you're not going to be fruitful. But if you are connected to the vine, how does the fruit get produced? Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. So here's this relationship. Now it's being defined for us a little more clearly. You abide in me. My words abide in you. Here's the xylem and phloem of the grapevine. Remember that from biology? You don't. <laughs> so what, are you, what is he talking about now? That's not Bible words, okay? Those aren't theology words. That's little tubules in plants that take stuff up and down. Okay? So nutrients come in. I'm, I'm coming in. Stuff's happening there. Xylem and phloem. Okay? Stuff's happening there. Jesus' juices are flowing into my life and and I'm plugged into him and his words and we're abiding together. Fruits coming off the end of me. In that relationship, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. Prayer gets involved. As I'm in this vital union, I can ask God. And what happens as a result? By this is my Father glorified. Don't lose track of that little statement. Ask whatever you wish. By this is my Father glorified that you bear fruit and prove to be my disciples. Just in case we missed it, let's go on. Just as the Father loved me, I've loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. Just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I've spoken these things to you that my joy can be in you. That your joy may be made full. All of a sudden, Jesus has switched to talking about joy. When he said in John chapter 10, I have come that you might have life and have it in all of its fullness abundantly. Life that is satisfying. Here it is. You want satisfying life. You want abundant life. You want a joy-filled life. All right, there's something going on here that's going to give me joy. And so he says, verse 12, This is my commandment, that you love each other just as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that he lay down his lives for his friends. You're my friends if you do what I command you. I don't call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master's doing. But I've called you friends for all the things I've heard from my Father I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give you there is a direct connection between bearing fruit that looks and smells like Jesus, bearing fruit that has eternal life all over it, having joy, and hearing and receiving answers to prayer. And I think that what Jesus is saying in this passage is several things are important You must have a relationship with me. You abide in me. I abide in you. You're living in me. My words are flowing through you. You're in this vital union and it's characterized by you asking the Father and Him giving to you and fruit is coming out of your life through this asking. And as it comes out of your life, two things are happening. God is being glorified. Now, how is God glorified by fruit coming out of your life? Because the fruit has no other source but God Himself. He is the source of that. People see the results and they say, This has to be God. This has to be God. This is God fruit. This is me. It's not you. This is God at work. God is glorified. They see things that only He can do. And your joy is made full. Do you ever remember a time when you were real little you wanted to help your parents? Well, how... Three and four year olds are that's before they get independent and don't want to help. Daddy, can I help? Can I help? Mommy, can I help? Can I help? <laughs> can I can I can I pour the cake mix in there? It's all over the kitchen floor. Can I help you carry that dad? Then you end up carrying him and it, you know, because it's it's one of those things. Do you but do you remember ever doing that? And and do you remember the overwhelming sense of this feels good, when you felt like you were helping your mom or dad, can any of you connect with that? Think really hard. <laughs> go, go way back. I can remember times when, when my parents or a significant adult in my life made me feel good because they allowed me to participate with them in a way that made me feel like I had played a part. Now, that is purely human, and admittedly it's very shallow compared to the relationship we have with God. But what Jesus is saying here is, I am drawing you into a relationship with my Father. That is characterized by you participating in his work. And you can be involved by asking for things to be done. And he will do them. And you will see the results out there. You will see things happen in this physical universe. You will see things happen because you have asked. And when you see that, you will have overwhelming joy because you've been a part in joining hands with God to make a difference in the world. Now, I have not fully answered the question, why pray, yet. Next week, I'm going to take you there. I'm going to give you biblical teaching on why this relationship is vital that I hope will open your eyes to a whole new world of meaning about prayer. But I want to leave you with this this morning. From the scriptures, what we have learned thus far is... You don't have because you don't ask. Plainly, there's no other way to understand that but to recognize that there are things that God wants to do that you are not seeing done because you're not praying. You don't have because you don't ask. Secondly, Many times when we ask, we have a wrong motivation. And God is not in the habit of just giving crazy little kids everything they ask for. He just doesn't do that. But he is willing to enter into a dialogue with you and refine your motives, if you will let him, so that you can come into a place of asking that is appropriate. And he is inviting us to participate in his work in bearing fruit that comes out of prayer. This is how God is glorified, and this is how your life is filled with joy. When you are in a vital union with me, described as abiding in me, my words abiding in you, and And practiced by asking the Father to do things in this world that he does. And you see them. And he's glorified. And you're full of joy. Next week, I'm going to take you into uh, an overview of Scripture that gives us the underlying reason why it is necessary for us to pray. And I I really am trusting that God, when you walk out of here next Sunday afternoon, I'm really trusting that you will understand that prayer is the most important thing you and I can ever do, and that it does make a difference. And if you don't do it, the world is going to be empty of certain things, because you did not ask them to be accomplished. But this morning, I want you to take with you that one of the reasons to pray is because God answers prayer. Because He does things when we pray that would not happen if we didn't. And therefore, we ought always to pray and not to lose heart. Father, I want to ask this morning that you uh, deeply build these truths in our heart, layer upon layer, line by line, precept by precept. That we begin to form an understanding of prayer that will lead us to be a praying people. That will bring us to the conviction that of all the things we do, perhaps the most important is to pray. And that prayer changes things. And Father, I know and you know that we get it wrong a lot of times. We come blabbing to you about all kind of stuff that we want and Sometimes we're not even very thoughtful about what's going on inside of us, why we're begging for it. We get confused and disillusioned. And I don't believe, Father, that it's ever your intent to frustrate us. Lord, maybe it's the fault of poor teaching. Maybe we who are leaders and teachers who bear that double duty and and judgment have failed to make it clear. But for whatever reason, your children have become frustrated because they're not seeing the results of prayer that they expect. But I want to ask you, Father, bring us to that place where we know how to pray where we pray and things happen where we know that we're making a difference because we're seeing specific answers to very detailed requests that have been born of your spirit and spoken by our mouths in faith and we have seen the answers And our hearts are filled with joy because God is acting and we have been in the process. Lord, teach us to pray. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.